There's a Latin phrase called theologia gloriae. And it means this. It means a theology of glory. This Christmas season, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, and we take in the truths that are wrapped up in the Christmas story, that phrase, theologia gloriae, stood out to me. Because for the Christian, the story of Christ is truly a glorious theology. It's the account of God's redemption of man. It's the account of God's means and purposes by which He accomplished that redemption. The story of Christmas is held by Christians worldwide as the revealing of the glory of God in Christ. And yet that revealing was veiled by Christ taking on flesh and becoming man. We hold these things to be a glorious theology because it is the story as we look at two it was when I preached two weeks ago in Hebrews 10 that Christ declared, Behold, I come to do your will, a body you have prepared for me. It's a glorious theology because it boasts in God's goodness, in God's righteousness, in God's love, but also in God's humility, which we don't consider all the time. It's a glorious theology because it entirely strips man of anything that we could actually boast in. And it gives all glory to God, squarely on Jesus. It's also a glorious theology because of the way in which God accomplished man's redemption. And by way, I don't simply want to mean the cross, though that obviously is central. The way in which God accomplished man's redemption is what sets the gospel apart this Christmas and every other day from every other system of worship in the world. It's not only the work of redemption, but it's how the beauty, the splendor, and the glory of redemption and those truths were hidden from those who could not see themselves as part of Jesus' narrative. What I mean by that is this. Follow along with me. We read in the Gospels that Jesus kept telling the people that He came for sinners. That He came for the lost. That He came for the sick. That He came for the hopeless. And so those who did not see themselves in any of those figures as lost, as sick, as hopeless, they didn't see themselves in Christ's narrative. They didn't see, therefore, the value or glory of the coming of Christ. But I want you to turn with me real quick, and we're going to jump around to several passages today, but start with me in Matthew 11. And I want you to listen to how Jesus prayed in this passage. In Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20, we're going to read all the way through verse 30. And half of this is a very well-known passage to you. Maybe the other half, first half, isn't quite so. But in Matthew 11.20, Matthew records this, Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They didn't see themselves as needing to. Jesus came for the sinners, the sick. I'm not a sinner and I'm not sick. Why do I need to repent? Here's what Jesus said to them in 21. Woe to you, Teresa. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now listen closely. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's the glory we boast in. Who was it to which Jesus revealed these truths? Verse 28 gives us the answer. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It was, according to verse 27, this glorious theology was revealed to those who least likely would have been the recipients in the self-righteous man's eyes. Go to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 1. We're going to read how Paul described this truth, this glorious theology being hidden to those who didn't think they need it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 probably beat me there. My pages are stuck. Beginning in verse 18. Here's how Paul said it, and it's even more direct. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discern discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Wow. For everyone who sees themselves in that narrative that we just read, who sees themselves as the weak, as the lowly, as the sinner, 
as being of no reputation or no position, Christmas and the coming of Christ, the incarnation, is a glorious theology. But the incarnation is just the beginning. To those outside the faith, especially irreligious people or secular people, these truths that we celebrate are anything but a theologia gloriae. Rather, they view, a, view our teaching as a theologia ignoris, which means a theology of ignorance. And we're called that very often. We're called a people of ignorance. Because the world wants a theology of glory to reflect God in their own image and in their own creation. A God who resembles mankind and mankind's achievements, mankind's strengths and wit, mankind's beauty and charm. It's pretty easy to see in Hollywood and in our culture who they put forward as a respectable, worthy object of worship. And I want to run some by you. In our movies, the heroes are strong. They're beautiful. They're assertive in an arrogant and boastful way. They're unaccountable to anybody. They're righteous in whatever they do so that whatever they do is deemed right, even if it's wrong. It's fascinating to watch our culture's obsession, however, and lust in craving after a Savior type. Have you noticed that? We celebrate the coming of our Savior. In nearly every movie Hollywood puts out, there's a Savior type put forward. Men crave a Savior, but they crave a Savior in their own making and image. So the Christian message and everything we just celebrate today, the coming of Christ in a lowly, humble way, is completely unacceptable to the world. They can't conceive or accept the notion of a deity who would condescend to such lowly conditions, who would allow the mistreatment against himself as Christ did, who would choose the manger over a castle, who would choose the weakness of flesh to the strength of deity, who would allow the beauty of God to be effaced by wicked men. Because when you concede that Christ came in this way, what you're really conceding is an admission that man really is not all that great. In fact, he's downright awful. One author said it this way that I read. Hebrews tell us that God made man a little lower than the angels. And he adds, and ever since he's been getting a little lower still. The coming of Christ, which we celebrate here in a few days, is a stinging indictment on humanity that the only way for man to be saved was by God Himself and not by man. That man was in fact hopeless, left to himself. Christ simply doesn't fit the bill of a Savior by most people's standards and desire, but we hate to admit that truth. The scholar J. Grisham Mackin said this, men love to be encouraged by false hopes. One historian stated that Christianity is set apart by this fact. It is the only religion to suffer the humiliation of its God. No other religion would suffer its God to be humiliated like the Christian God. So the gospel is both repelling and foolish to those who are lost. Paul told the church at Corinth, 
Also that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 16 and 17. So wherever we go, we are an aroma of Christ, but to those who are perishing, it stinks. It's an aroma of death to death. To those who are being saved, the aroma of Christ is beautiful. So the incarnation which we celebrate here in a few days was just the beginning. The incarnation with all its mystery, however, was to culminate at the cross. And thus we're celebrating both today. And it's a glorious truth to celebrate in the coming of Christ and in the partaking of communion. Christmas and cross cannot truly be separated. Neither one are complete without the other. Christmas was not simply God becoming man without purpose. For us men, God became a man, but with purpose. The Scripture says this, it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews chapter 2. But an even shorter and more precise sentence, Paul spans the subject of our worship this morning, Christmas and communion, in one sentence. In Philippians, Paul says this, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul moves immediately from being found in human appearance and being born of woman straightway to death. And so what we celebrate this Christmas is literally that verse. The birth of Christ and the death of Christ. And that's Christmas. We see the cradle and the cross. We see the birth and the death. Paul recognized that connection. Christ the Lord was born to die. And so this truth, this glorious theology of ours, as, as I thought about Christmas, and I, I meditate upon these songs we sing all month. I wanted to get one. Come thou long-expected Jesus that we just sang. I can't remember if it was John or Charles Wesley who wrote this. One of the Wesley brothers wrote this song. It was one of the first songs that he ever wrote. But verse 3 captures this paradox of Christ being Lord and yet the lowliness of Christ. Verse 3, we just sang this. You'll recognize, Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By His life He brings us gladness. Our Redeemer, Shepherd, Friend, Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this the everlasting wonder. Christ the Lord. Christ was born Lord of all. I wrote down as I thought about some of these paradoxical dynamics in Scripture of who Jesus is in His deity and who He is in His humanity. And I, I listed them for you. Just listen to this glorious theology of ours who we hold our Savior and Lord to be. Christ was crucified in weakness, the Scripture says, and yet He was raised in power. 
Christ was the image of the invisible God, we're told, and yet He forever now bears the image of man. By Christ, all things were created, we're told in Colossians, and yet Christ condescended to become a man, we just read in Philippians. Christ is before all things, Colossians also says, and yet He became the lowliest of all men. By His power, all things are held together, and yet meek and mild we sing, He lay His glory aside. In Christ, the fullness of God dwelt, Scripture says, and yet He suffered hunger, sorrow, loneliness, abandonment. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, we're told. He is also bondservant and carpenter. Christ, whose beauty is incomparable, also took a form, Isaiah tells us, as man that had no beauty that we should desire Him. Christ, who in the strength of the power of His Word and the breath of His mouth, Revelation says, will slay nations. But Isaiah also tells us that He was a lamb who opened not His mouth and was silent before His shearers. That's a glorious theology to us as we worship Christmas and communion this morning. The paradox is incredible to those who believe. It is a beautiful truth that we boast in. To the world, it's not so. And that's okay. We hold out hope for the world. I, I read this short little story just this week. I want to share it with you. It illustrates the truth we've been talking about. And then we'll head into communion. There was a man who did not believe in God. He simply couldn't accept that Jesus was God's Son, and not simply God, perhaps. His wife explained it to him many times, but still he rejected that truth. However, one night he was sitting in his den before a fire as a storm raged outside, and he was startled by a thud on his window. He gets up, and a little bird was seeking shelter from the storm, and it slammed itself into the window again and again, trying to get out of the storm. His heart began to feel pity for this bird, and he found himself saying to the bird, Go to the barn. You'll be safe in the barn. Go to the barn. The little bird became more and more frantic as it couldn't enter. The man wanted this little creature to find safety, but he knew the bird couldn't understand him. He began to think to himself, if only I could become a bird, then I could lead this little guy to safety. And no sooner had he thought that thought that he realized that this was exactly what God had done in sending Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us. Jesus became a man that we might now be able to relate to God. It was through Jesus that God became man and communicated His love, and demonstrated His, His love in Christmas and on the cross. So we're going to celebrate now and move into a time of communion. And if you haven't taken communion with Waypoint before, I'm going to read a passage out of Luke, but I'll explain to you how we like to do communion. It's a little different, but that's okay. This table is open to anyone who has a genuine relationship, saving relationship with Christ the Lord. 
It's not our table and we don't hold the rights over it. Christ does. For this is His body and His blood that we celebrate. So if you've become a partaker of Jesus, please partake of the Lord's Supper here today. I want to read a quote from a couple pastors. James D.G. Dunn, who I like reading, said this very simply about the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper represents the death of Christ and it proclaims that death in and through this shared celebration. John Calvin said this way, Although at the Lord's Supper my mind can think beyond what my tongue can utter, yet even my mind is conquered and overwhelmed by the greatness of this. Therefore nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery, which plainly neither the mind is able to conceive nor the tongue to express. Christmas culminating at the cross, we can't really put it into words, the depth of those truths. And what John Calvin is saying is, it simply remains to partake. That's the truth. I'm going to read out of the Gospel of Luke today. This is Luke's account of the Last Supper in Luke 22, verse 14. Luke records for us, And when the hour had come, he reclined, that's Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we partake of this meal and celebrate the death of Christ and proclaim the death of Christ until He comes. And so we celebrate here in a few days the first coming of our Lord. We commemorate why He came this first time in the act of communion, but we're additionally proclaiming He's coming back. And He's coming in power, He's coming in glory, and He's coming with salvation in His hand, ready to finish everything. And so this, is, this moment where we get to celebrate Christmas and communion is so glorious. It truly is a theology of glory that we get to partake in today. So what I want to ask you to do is you take time now to go before the Lord. And especially men, I want you to lead your, your wife, your family, whoever may be here with you, if they're not here with you, you go to the Lord yourself. And you worship Him this morning because Christmas, we celebrate Christ's coming, but He came with a purpose. And we're celebrating that purpose here. We're proclaiming that purpose here. And it's a glorious thing. So take time to go before the Lord. When you're ready, you come up when you're ready and partake. And then we're going to sing one more song and close the service, okay? Go before the Lord, please. Thank you.